0: This episode of the Ventureforth Podcast is sponsored by Troop Market and WorkCoin. Troop Market is a platform for hiring a great freelancer with WorkCoin, the cryptocurrency for freelance work. WorkCoin is unique in that it provides escrow protection, independent arbitration, and most importantly, fast transactions so that sellers can get paid immediately and avoid the slow mining and high transaction fees of paying for services with Ether or Bitcoin. WorkCoin's pre-sale starts on March 1st, but you can buy and sell freelancing services on Troop Market using WorkCoin today. For more information on the token sale, go to www.workcoin.net, and you can also go to troopmarket.com and earn $10 in WorkCoin just for listing a service. Hello, and welcome to the Ventureforth Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Mahabhutivani. We'll be chatting with some of the most interesting founders, startups, and VCs about the experiences that led them to where they are today, what they're currently working on, as well as the journey ahead of them. Hey, VentureForth listeners. If 2017 was the year of Bitcoin and the birth of cryptocurrency ICOs, 2018 may be the year we see crypto go mainstream and become adopted around the world. My guest today is Mark Jeffrey, a five-time entrepreneur with multiple exits, eight-time author, and worked closely with some of the biggest names in tech, including Jason Calacanis and Travis Kalanick. Today, he's the co-founder and CEO of the Guardian Token and Guardian Circle, products taking on an extremely critical industry that most of us take for granted, emergency response. Guardian is holding their own ICO in March this year, and I think their mission to create a new global public safety utility will make it an extremely successful one. As projects go, Guardian is amongst the more highly decorated, winning launch 2016 and most recently Coin Agenda, as well as taking top honors at the D10 e-conference in Gibraltar. Mark even appeared to pitch on Apple's Planet of the Apps. Mark, all the way from Silicon Beach, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Joe. Thank you very much for having me. Awesome. Well,
0: so you've been a successful multi-time founder. So before we dive into your latest project, I'd love to kick things off by learning about your background and history as an entrepreneur and investor.
1: Uh, sure, I, I can give you the uh, the condensed version. Um, so I, I grew up in New Hampshire. My dad was a software engineer. Uh, I'm a little bit older probably than you, so I had TRS-80s and Apple IIs in the house. Um, so fast forward, I got a software engineering degree, uh, did that, was a software engineer for a few years for a defense company and basically decided that was not for me. Uh, left, founded my first company in 1996. It was called The Palace. It was an avatar chat thing. Uh, it was backed by Time Warner, Intel, and SoftBank. Uh, we got it up to about 10 million users at its peak, which for those days was amazing. Um, we sold it in 99 to a company called Communities.com. And then I did a, a second company in 1999. That was kind of my F-up company during the, uh, the dot-com crash. <laughs> that was called Sig. I raised some money from Ron Conway and you know some other names you've probably heard of. And we, basically, we lost it in 2001. I uh, just couldn't raise any more money for it. Um, And so uh, a friend of mine uh, had a company going, and uh, he said, look, I can't pay you very much, but uh, at least you'll eat. And uh, so I said yes, and so I went and worked for him, and his name was Travis Kalanick, who later became the CEO of Uber, obviously. Um, So I did that for about a year and a half, and then uh, started another company called Zero Degrees. And that was an early business social network. We were a direct competitor of LinkedIn. Uh, We're in Reid Hoffman's famous slide deck now on the uh, competitor uh, side. And uh, we ended up selling that in 2004 to Barry Diller, uh, IEC, Interactive Corp. And then, uh, and then basically we were uh, had an interesting conversation where Diller said, hey, look, you have to figure out what you are, how you make money, because no- nobody really knew how you made money those days yet. And so bottom line, we came back and said we're a big jobs board. And, and Diller said, well, um, all of my companies are number one or number two in their category. Monster is number one, and, they're, and they spend $100 million a year on advertising, therefore – Zero Degrees would have to spend that to compete, therefore, no. And we, we basically were trying to uh, argue that the entire thing would, would grow virally, although we didn't really have those words yet. And there was just nothing in Diller's experience that suggested that was going to work. So he said no and basically bought us out of our contracts. Uh, so I left and uh, basically wrote novels for a while, did other things, and got into podcasting. And, um, and then in 2006, Calacanis called me up and said, hey, I got a term sheet from Sequoia, uh, to do a new kind of search engine, do you want to be CTO? And I said, yes. So uh, really, we actually started out on January 2nd of 2007. I did that for about four years. Uh, and then Jason and myself and the comedian Kevin Pollack started a video podcast company called This Weekend. And we were basically three-way partners in it. I was the CEO. And and bottom line, uh, we, uh, <laughs> we could not agree on how to move forward uh, with the strategy of the company. So I left after about a year and a half. And, uh, you know, all good feelings. I mean, Cal Canis and I are great friends. So no, no worries there. And then I basically consulted for a little while for Silicon Beach uh, Venture Capitalists. And then in 2014, I had the idea for Guardian Circle. And so I, I got serious about it in, 20, in 2015 and actually released the first version of it in 2016. So that's how we got to today.
0: Okay, wow. Um, so you've been had a very long career and you've probably seen several cycles at this stage. How is the ecosystem today different uh, you know compared to other points in your career, especially for like fundraising?
1: The world is very much now like it was in 1997 or eight. Oddly, and you'll see the same the same people who were sort of poking their heads up then are now are doing it so now uh, because we all feel the same thing in our heart of hearts. We've lived this before, we've seen this energy before. Um, Halsey Miner is, is in, who, who founded CNET, um, you know, Brock Pierce, a lot of the people that were sort of crazy early believers in the internet are once again uh, crazy inter, uh, early believers in crypto. And at the same time, I think the regular venture funded world has become, it's very different now than it, than it has been for most of my career uh, in the sense that it's, people are sometimes, a lot of folks in this world now are doing things for the wrong reasons. When I first started, people were excited and, uh, you know, believers, and now it's much more about the money on the venture side. And it's, it's a lot more sort of jaded, I think. And the crypto world is not like that. The crypto world has the fresh energy and the change the world belief for real, not just mouthing the words, um, that I saw in the internet the first time around. So I'd say that's the biggest difference.
0: Interesting. So how, how did you ultimately get involved in crypto?
1: Well, so I first heard about Bitcoin in 2011, mm-hmm. and it was uh, there was an episode of This Week in Startups that Jason Calacanis was the host of, where somebody was talking about it, and I was listening to the show, and um, and I remember thinking, well, this is interesting, but it sounds a lot like Flues, which was a mm. virtual currency in the 90s. I, mean, I don't know if you're old enough to remember that. Oh, totally. Yeah, okay, so you know what I'm talking about. So Whoopi Goldberg was like the spokesperson for it, and uh, you know, it was a centralized virtual currency. It never went anywhere. And when I heard about Bitcoin, I was like, "Nah, I've heard this before. It's, it's not going to work this time. And uh, I didn't really get, you know, the decentralized part of it yet. And so the next time it popped up on my radar was in 2013. And uh, I saw some interesting people paying attention to it. Michael Turpin, Brock Pierce. There, there was this sort of energy around it that I had not seen in a very long time. So I took the time to try to understand it as an engineer. And um, when I finally got it in my head and it took me a little while, it was not an easy thing. It weren't like there weren't a lot of really good explanations out there. And I, they, were, they were just sort of drenched in crypto mysticism and, you know, very dense. And, and even as an engineer, I, I wasn't getting it. And, uh, and then when I finally got it in my head, I was like, oh, this is actually pretty simple. Just nobody's really explained it well yet. So I got super excited. And I thought this and I had the thought this may be the most important thing since the Internet. And once that thought popped in my head, the next thought was, I must be insane because I can't, (laughs) (laughs) right? And so um, so I, I, you know, but the more I studied it, the more I actually kind of thought that. And um, I skipped over a part. uh, So I had previously published some novels, some of them published by HarperCollins. So uh, theoretically, I knew how to write and I was an engineer. So I kind of said to myself, I really need to write up the explanation of this that should have been written a long time ago. So I went and did that, and I wrote a book called uh, Bitcoin Explained Simply in 2013, and just I just self-published that one because I needed to get it out quickly, I felt. And then when the Mount Gox crash happened, uh, or, or directly following it, and everybody thought, oh, Bitcoin is BS, it's not going to go anywhere, blah blah blah. I, you know, even though it was 160 bucks at the time, I was still like, nope, we're just this is a calm calm period uh, before the true storm. And I wrote a second book called The Case for Bitcoin. Uh, where I argued it was going to um, have a meteoric rise, of which this is only what we're seeing right now is only the first part of. Interesting. So, yeah. So obviously, I got very, very bullish on it very early. And oddly, I will say I appeared on an ep- episode of This Week in Startups. And I know you know Howard Lindzen, and I love to bring this up because it's so good. Howard was on the same show I was on. And I was talking about the, my enthusiasm for Bitcoin, and Howard was making fun of me. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta go find that clip because it's great. He totally rips on me, and I'm like, "Nope, you're wrong." So, and now he's now he calls himself Blockchain Linsen or something like that.
0: Yep. Yeah, just- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's uh, getting pretty bullish on it. So, on your current projects, you know, so founders often have personal experiences that led them to pursue an opportunity that they had, you know, firsthand experience with. Did you experience a situation that led to a light bulb going off in your head that led to Guardian and Guardian Circle?
1: Yes, and it consisted of two parts. And, um, and so basically the first part was, um, and I've never told this story, so this is, you're getting an exclusive.
0: Sweet. <laughs> um,
1: so, uh, I, you know, I know Travis and, mm. uh, we, we're, we do not hang out all the time or anything like that, but we're our friends. And, um, after he raised the first jaw dropping several billion, uh, in 2014, uh, he took a little break and called me up and said, Hey, you want to hang out? And I was like, sure. So we, we started chatting and I had read all the stuff he'd been saying in the press, Um, and he was basically saying, Look, we've gotten good at moving people. Now we're going to move things. And, uh, we were talking about that. And I basically said, Look, I don't like that plan. And the reason I don't like it is because your superpower as Uber is, you have a real time view of people moving around and cars moving around. And because they're always in motion, that knowledge is super valuable. Um, but things don't move. If I, you know, put them somewhere, they, you know, they stay there. And what becomes, and so you basically your superpower has no meaning in the world of things. It's like being Superman or sorry, it's like being Spider-Man and all of a sudden being transported to the Gobi Desert, like your web shooting cool and everything, but there's no <laughs> buildings to swing on, right? It doesn't matter anymore. So I, I kind of was like, you know, the efficiencies there are, you know, warehouses with robots uh, or owning a fleet of trucks. And that's called Amazon and FedEx. So I didn't like that plan for him. And he's like, and he basically was like, well, you're wrong, but what, you know, what do you think we should do? And I said, well, you should go after other intelligence grid problems where that superpower makes sense. And he said, like what? And I said, I don't know, because I just made this up five seconds ago. So I I sort of had this little thought in my head, what is another problem like that? And uh, I didn't really have an answer. Uh, Literally two weeks later, my girlfriend had a stroke. Now, she's okay. It It actually ended up being a form of migraine that presented like a stroke. So she's fine. This is not the girlfriend memorial app or something like that. But she... She was all alone in her garage, and, and basically she was trying to – she couldn't type. She couldn't talk. Uh, she could press a button. She could have pressed a button had she had a panic button to press. And I just happened to find her about a half hour into this thing. Um, had it been a real stroke, she probably would have been damaged permanently if – you know, because that, that would have been past the time where they could do something for her. Um, so I took her to the hospital, and you know everything's fine now. But later I realized – and I was analyzing the situation. I was like, you know, her neighbor was home. I was driving by that area a few times. We later found out that there were a couple other people driving near there. Two of her friends lived close by. There were about seven or eight people that were within a thousand yards of her during this event. And she was, I mean, it was like she was drowning in help. If you were looking down on a map, it was like, holy crap, there's help everywhere, but she couldn't get at it. And so I immediately said, well, somebody has to have made an app for this. So I went and looked. And what I discovered was, uh, oh, and I should also say that's when my brain went, oh, my God, this is an intelligence grade problem. This is the thing that I was talking about two weeks ago. and So I had that light bulb go off. So I was like, ah, somebody must have done this. So I went and looked. And what I found was there were a lot of people that had made panic button apps. But without exception, all that they did was uh, send a text message to people that, you know, you entered in as your emergency contacts. And the text message said something like, Mark's in trouble. Click here to help him. And my thought was like, well, if I got a text message like that, even if it was from a friend, my first response would be that link is probably spam. So I'm not going to click on it. Uh, But I, you know, the person might be in trouble. So I'm going to call them. So in practical reality, if someone pushes one of those panic buttons, all they succeed in doing is blowing up their phone with 10 inbound phone calls. All 10 of those people don't know about the other nine. All 10 of them don't know where the other nine are. They don't know who's closest. They can't talk to each other. So I was just like, this is crazy. We have to invent something where the second half of the problem, organizing the response, is uh, inherent to the, product, to the panic button product. So that was basically what led us to create Guardian Circle, and that's, that's how the whole thing got started. Interesting.
0: I- I've looked at several opportunities in the space for the fund, and although they weren't a fit, I-, I know there's a great opportunity here. Can you tell us how Guardian Circle and ultimately Guardian will work and why the Guardian token
1: is needed? So after sort of doing the friends, family, and neighbor version, which is, you know, the 1.0 proof of concept, really, the more I studied that, and and I started studying the 911 landscape to see, you know, what that looked like. And the more I dug in there, I found several things. One, six billion people on earth just have no 911. There's just, there's no magic number you can call when, you know, the shit goes down. It just doesn't exist. And for those of us who do have it, um, the other thing I discovered was it was, it was pretty terrible. John Oliver did a whole bit on this about a year ago, uh, with a piece called "911 Sucks," and you can go back and, and you know watch him rip on it for about 11 minutes. Um, but just sort of one highlight from that: when you call 911 from a mobile device, they have no idea where you are. Your location information is not transmitted, which is insane. Uber can find you more easily than 911. So, uh, you know, that's that's one of a long list of things. And basically, the situation arose because 911 was invented in the 60s. The federal government made a deal with the telecoms, where they would fund uh, the 911 system, um, and then mobile phones came along, and they the federal government vastly underestimated the eventual popularity of mobile devices. And when they exploded, the federal government kind of looked at that and said, "Well, we're not providing any more funding. This is up to the states to pick up the slack." Uh, the states never pick up the slack on stuff like that because at the state level, the things people care about are schools and roads and You know, crap like that. You don't call 911 every day. So if it's not right in front of your face, it always keeps getting bumped down. So the emergency services, uh, it just got orphaned in the 60s in terms of technology. And there's no way for it to get better. So uh, the more I looked at this, I was like, you know, what we need to do is what Uber did for taxis, we need to do for emergency response. We need to completely reboot it from scratch. So if you were going to reboot it from scratch, what would you do? Well, you'd build something that was mobile native, location aware, something where friends, family, and neighbors are alerted at the same time as professional response. And you add in a third class of paid citizen responders. So people are sort of in between professional responders and friends, family, and neighbors. And these are people who are vetted and who have some sort of skill um, for an emergency. So examples, uh, EMTs and nurses that are around and off-duty, emergency transport. So that could be... Uh, professional ambulance or privatized ambulance or if you're in a remote village it could just be the guy with the truck who can run you down the mountain Um, or it could be a security response Uh, of course we have professional in la we have bonded and licensed private security that people can subscribe to for like 30 bucks a month we put them on this grid and we're working with the women's safety x prize in india Um, and the problem they're trying to solve is the problem of rape where when a woman is assaulted and she calls the cops the cops come and rape her also So the answer is not more cops. The answer is some sort of citizen security response, both in the States and in the the West and in the developing world where there is no 911, rebooting this from scratch is just, you know, you just have to do it. So how does the token work? Um, Well, there's basically, there's five different ways that it works. First, it allows you to form emergency response contracts with those semi-pro responders that class of sort of uberized responders I was talking about as a form of settlement. So people get paid in Guardian. And, uh, you know, our hope is, uh, that, that basically some of these people who are early participants in the ecosystem do very well with the Guardian that they set aside. So number two, we allow people in the developing world to gift Guardian, uh, sorry, gift Guardian from our world to the developing world. So we think, you know, sponsorship of safety uh, will be a very popular behavior, much like you know, sponsoring a child and that sort of thing is right now. Uh, but the thing that's really cool about it is because we're using a token, Guardian goes directly to the beneficiary. It does not go through a government, a bank, or an organization. So you know that the Guardian was not spent inefficiently or inappropriately. So basically that Red Cross and Haiti stuff that you heard about can't happen here. You can see how every sponsorship dollar was spent. In other words, you can track every penny of, of your donated guardian as easily as a FedEx package. So what we're thinking there is some sort of blockchain explorer that translates it into English, so anyone can view it and understand, you know, what happened to that guardian, I said, and uh, which that that kind of transparency has never been available. Number three, uh, we put all the alert transcripts on the guardian blockchain. So just like in 911 world, there's you know the the transcripts from the 911 calls. We have a full timeline of who said what where everyone was because we have the location information also you know where they moved to during the emergency uh, what time they responded or did not respond we know both things and after the fact uh, this is encrypted and placed on our blockchain and the encryption keys are handed to the alerting party they have custody they decide who sees it who doesn't and we can't even get at that information if we wanted to we don't have the keys and because it's on the blockchain it's immutable and tamper proof so this is evidence and you know that it was not screwed with in any way. Uh, number four, we provide for an emergency information lockbox. So you know, basically it's a record of all the stuff you don't want anyone to know about unless you're in trouble. So that could be your secret health issue, uh, the location of a hidden key or a combination to a safe. Uh, it could be your Bitcoin private keys, whatever you want to put in here. It's sold up to you. It's only released when you declare an emergency. And it's only uh, viewable then by your designated recipient. So basically, it's a two-key system. And last, Guardian doubles as a loyalty program for Guardian Circle. And so basically, if you download Guardian Circle and get your friends, family, neighbors on it with you, we'll spiff you a little bit of Guardian because basically that's marketing for us. So we want to reward you for that. So those are the five different ways in, in which the Guardian token is used within the Guardian Circle universe. So presumably
0: Guardian will be tradable and maybe even uh, held on to like insurance, for instance. I mean, we, we don't know when we'll need it, but we may need it at some point. How will you ensure people have tokens when they need them and not sort of trade them away?
1: So you'll be able to basically purchase Guardian via the app. So the, the way it'll work is you might not even be aware of what's going on. I mean, we'll tell you, but if you don't care, you don't have to pay attention. Um, you basically enter your credit card in and you buy. You know, it, It's going to feel like buying credits for... Uh, subscribing to enhanced protection services and so you basically buy a bunch of points for a year or a month or whatever whatever length of subscription it is and then you'll get notified you know when, when you're about to run out and it'll top you up so it's sort of like a you know your domain registrar it will be something you probably don't think about more than once a year and you'll get an email that says okay we're buying some more Guardium. so you keep your subscription going and you just kind of you know unless you want to stop your subscription you just let it go
0: got it I'm taking a step back you talked about drowning in help earlier And I've read studies that say that people requesting help in a crowd actually receive less or slower help than if they asked help from a single person. I I can't remember what uh, that effect was. But but this can be due to everybody expecting somebody else to be the first to assist. How will Guardian help against that level of human nature?
1: I think the situation is different when everyone is on a map and it's pretty obvious which one is the closest one. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of an algorithm for who should go over. It becomes pretty obvious when everybody sees everyone else's location on a map. Um, and that's just with your friends, family, and neighbors. Uh, the class of professional responders, they have to go. The ones that we recruit and, you know, kind of the Uberized EMTs, if you will, they have to go. Otherwise, we kick them out of the system. Uh, and we always we send more than one. So, you know, we'll send at least three for every emergency alert, just to make sure like somebody gets there.
0: I've listened to other conferences and stuff like that, where you talk about Guardian Circle seeing a great deal of usage during the Florida Hurricanes. Yeah. especially in emergency situations like that where helping another person may, may actually be hazardous, how can you ensure that people can get the help that they need?
1: So, you know, I, for friends, family, and neighbors, they're gonna have to decide for themselves what level of assistance they can or cannot provide. In some cases, obviously, you know, if it's too dangerous to go out, it's, you know, you should not go out. Um, but that's totally within the purview of what you feel comfortable with as a friend, family, and neighbor uh, in terms of providing assistance. And, you know, the same will, will have to go for the, you know, the professional or the semi-pro responders as well. So some of this, some of the, I guess you'd call it the um, response algorithm uh, are things we're, we're still working out. And we do have some advisors from the classical 911 world that we're talking with about exactly, you know, what the escalation procedures should be and what they should do and what they should not do. We're going to tiptoe into this thing. And, and, you know, the first rule is do no harm. So if something is going to uh, something is very likely to put a responder in harm's way, we will not do it. We'll basically tell him you shouldn't you shouldn't go. And one of our advisors is a guy who ran 911 for the entire state of Kentucky uh, for about 10 years. And uh, he loves what we're doing. He basically wanted to build something like what we're doing, uh, but just couldn't because, uh, you know, because he's in government land, bottom line. So, but he, um, in his words, 911 is too big to fix. (laughs) That was his phrase. So, um, but he believes that, you know, we're not going to be able to solve every problem. Our goal is that 90% of the time, we solve problems 500% better than what's there right now. There's going to be some stuff, you know, look, not everybody can be safe and that sucks. But should we not make the attempt? No, of course we should make the attempt. And we should be able to provide something which is way better than what we have right now most of the time. So if we hit that goal, I think that's the best anyone can expect.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, you also mentioned that transactions are going to occur on your own blockchain, presumably to avoid slow mining and fees and stuff from network congestion. How do you ensure fast speeds in the event of high traffic on Guardian Circle?
1: So the alerting part of Guardian Circle, at least for, the, for right now, is not tied into the blockchain. Uh, and the reason, as you rightly point out, that I mean, the blockchain is a tortoise. And in an emergency, we need a hair. So that stuff is very, very high availability, fast, traditional, um, centralized. Really, uh, the alert, the alerting system is all centralized. So we're not going to change that right now because blockchains are just too slow. Bottom line, anything that's asynchronous, however, is on the blockchain. So you know, alert transcripts don't have to be, you know, they don't have to be fast. They just have to be recorded after the fact. So that you know, all the five things that I brought up, settlement after the fact. All that stuff could be on the blockchain. Nonetheless, um, you know, our feeling was that we, we needed a, a blockchain that was super reliable. And we saw way too much technical volatility uh, in the Ethereum world, uh, basically in two ways. One, uh, well, obviously, we all saw CryptoKitties mm-hmm. <laughs> recently.
0: And yeah, Ethereumon.
1: Yeah, right. And so one app swamped all the entire Ethereum blockchain. And we, we, you know, basically if people didn't get paid, right, we, we'd have, if people, even for a day, like in the developing world, if they responded to an, an alert and they didn't get paid, they're going to be like, you know, hey, your system doesn't work, dude. I don't want to be on the system anymore. I'm, I'm done responding. You know, we can't, then we lose people who could potentially respond to emergencies. People might actually die, right, if responders don't go, if they lose faith. So we just sort of looked at this and we said, look, we can't have that situation. Number two, you know, the average F transaction right now is about three bucks, and which, which you know, if you are trying to service the six billion people on Earth with no 911, a large portion of which are unbanked, uh, three bucks is a lot of money. And so we just could not. The, the transaction fee volatility was just something you know, it just priced out all the people that were trying to uh, to help. So uh, the the only long, I could go on for a long time, but basically the only real solution right now today was to build our own blockchain. We may not be on our own blockchain forever. There are other blockchains coming out which look pretty good. I mean, ultimately, I don't think we want to be, you know, innovating in the blockchain space. We want to take advantage of other people's innovations. So it will likely move at some point to, you know, something like EOS or NEO or one of those guys is my guess at this point. But until we feel pretty good about one of those, um, you know, we'll stay on our own.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I also read that uh, Guardian will be protected against 51% attacks Can you briefly explain for the audience what a 51% attack is and why being resistant to that is important and ultimately how you're doing that?
1: Yes. So the the 51% attack is one of the vulnerabilities of Bitcoin and and pretty much any blockchain. Well, not all blockchains, but a lot of them. Uh, It basically means that the way Bitcoin is able to work its magic is a consensus is built on whether transactions are real or not. And basically the miners in in the Bitcoin universe, collectively decide by voting effectively whether a transaction is legitimate or not. And it's in everyone's interest to vote fairly and to not forge transactions to ensure the integrity of the network um, so they can keep making money and their Bitcoins continue to be worth money and people believe in it. Now, that's only true unless you control 51 percent or more of the miners, in which case you can forge anything you want because you can you can rig the vote. And you can re, you, know, you can basically award yourself, you know, two million Bitcoins if you want. So if that situation ever occurred, the Bitcoin network would be compromised. We, we couldn't know what was true and what wasn't. Our coin resists that. Um, so basically, even if someone controls 51% or more of the miners, the forgeability still cannot occur. Now, we, this is where we're getting into the part of the blockchain that I'm not the expert in. We worked with a guy named Jim Blasco. Um, who's behind the Aspire coin and like three or four other coins are already out and doing very well. He's been around for about three or four years. And, and basically my understanding of it is is that the wallets participate also in checking to make sure that the blockchain has not been altered or screwed with in any way, even in the event of a 51% attack. So you're basically using the periphery as an additional check and balance. And by periphery, I mean the wallets, the end user wallets, um, are participating in this check and balance not just the miners so if the miners go off the rails you'd have to take control of all the wallets also in order to um, to start forging things uh, and you know if the wallets basically are reporting no this is not true this this block was changed you know the miner the, the mining software will react and, and not allow those forged transactions to go through so that's the basic idea
0: interesting so I want to kind of segue into the ico piece um, since that's sort of the super hot topic, not just for 2017. I, I suspect 2018 is going to be even bigger, uh, especially considering we're, how early we are in this whole process. But what stage is your token sale currently in, and how much are you targeting to raise?
1: So we are in the pre-sale phase right now, and that basically means we're the the, the minimum amount is 25k, um, and we're offering a 40% discount. So. You know, if you want you want to get you want to get the hefty discount, and you've got enough to participate, this is the time to get in. On the 24th of January, we will move into public pre-sale. Uh, and what that means is we will lower the minimum amount to 5K, and we'll be at a 20% bonus. Uh, sorry, 25% bonus. Um, so you, you won't get as much, but you'll still get something. That will run until March 20th, when we will enter the public public sale, um, and when we open the doors there. And I should mention also with the pre-sales, accredited investors in the U.S. only are allowed to participate. You don't have to be accredited if you're not a U.S. citizen. If you're somewhere else in the world, that's okay. For the public sale, we will allow anyone in any amount, except we will block uh, U.S.-based uh, IP addresses uh, from participating. It's unfortunate that we have to do that, but you know, it's the climate. And the in order to be compliant with the SEC, there's, we really have no choice, bottom line. So that's kind of where we're at right now. uh, We're looking to sell $10 million worth of tokens, Um, and it looks pretty good right now. I feel very good about reaching that goal. I've spoken to
0: a a number of companies doing their own ICOs recently, and it's been really interesting seeing or hearing the different types of challenges that the companies are raising, and a lot of that depends on really when, when you talk to them. What has been the biggest challenge or surprise that you've encountered in the process of building Guardian and working your way toward the ICO? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, this is a, this is an interesting topic. I'm glad you brought it up. So the so the, this whole world is it's kinda like living on the Genesis planet in that uh from Star Trek, in that like it the rules change every five minutes, it feels like. So what worked a month ago doesn't work now. And new things work, uh, and you have to kind of discover them. So an example of that is in July of last year I had a friend of mine who did an ICO and all he did was promote it on Reddit. And there were so few ICOs in those days that Basically, he sold ten million dollars worth in about thirty seconds, and had and could have sold a hundred million dollars worth. Uh, he had that am- amount of demand. By August, that was totally different because there were so many ICOs that you couldn't just post on Reddit and promote there. You know, you basically had to get out in front of people. So at that point, you had to go on the road and uh, go and plug uh, to the whales who were attending the conferences, and people wanted to meet you and kind of look in your eye and, and listen to you talk and. You know, there, there was a lot more sort of diligence going on. It, w- it wasn't as crazy. And what I discovered was, you know, at first, you know, we went out on the road and, um, you know, we get sort of a tepid response. People are like, "Man, that's nice." And um, by November, after we won at D10E, that was when sort of the momentum finally shifted and, and filled our sale. And in January, it just took off like a bat out of hell. And I'm not even really sure, you know, exactly what happened, other than we reached some sort of, um, uh, I don't know, threshold in the coin investor consciousness uh, that we just hadn't before. And, and really, when when I look back, it feels like I've been on the road for a year, but really it's only been three months. And it's just sort of constantly uh, getting on stages and planes and going out there. And now people, it's kind of like when people see you three or four times, they're like, oh, okay, you're real. This is not like a fly-by-night project. This is this has got some weight behind it. Oh, look, it's got some new investment. Get some more uh it's won some more awards, it's got some advice more advisors that I know and that I've seen on other stages. It just takes a little bit of time for it to sort of build up. So very unlike the venture world where um you know you basically say, I'm raising money, you go to Sand Hill Road, you got like a couple weeks, and if they say no, then then you're done. Like it's over. <laughs> In this world, it's uh you go on the road and, and everyone kind of doesn't say yes or no, they just kind of watch for a while. And the longer you're around, the better it is. So it's, it's you know there, there is no sort of time where you're, you're where you're dead. You just keep you just keep going. So that's that's kind of it's interesting. The laws of physics in this world are different from the old venture world, and in, in that just the, the rules are different, the people are different, the the way in which it occurs are different, the people who participate are different, and the fact that it's global is very different. So I just had an investor from uh, Bulgaria last night. Uh, put in 70K. I mean, just, you know, that would never happen in the old venture world.
0: Interesting. So would you say that on balance then, because you've done this a couple times now uh, in terms of raising money, I think, uh, is it easier or harder than it used to be to raise money?
1: Uh, you're saying from the venture world?
0: No, I mean, like, I guess uh, venture, comp- like traditional venture compared to this global ICO community.
1: I'd say it's probably easier in the ICO world if you can rise above the noise. mm once you rise above the noise, it becomes very easy. Uh, rising above the noise is difficult and, uh, you know, that's, that's the challenge. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit fortunate and I know a lot of the people personally who are putting on the conferences, so getting on those stages, I have some, you know, unusual access probably that, you know, a lot of folks probably don't have.
0: It seems like the unsung hero in all of these projects then may be the marketing and community
1: people. Uh, would you say that that'd be the case? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that you have to pay a lot of attention to is Telegram, which is <laughs> you know, basically Telegram is where people want to talk and they want to talk to you and you've got to have a presence there. And, you know, that, that was sort of a, a new one on me because I'm not a, I wasn't a Telegram user at all until we started working on ICO. And it's just you have to you have to pay attention to where the people are and where they want to talk to you, not where you not where you think you should be. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, most PR firms don't have like a Telegram strategy, Right. And the other big thing is getting in front of the YouTube vloggers and talking to them and having them review your coin. And uh, that slice of the universe is very important also. So the old PR kind of, you know, well, we're on Twitter and we have a, <laughs> a Facebook group and nobody cares. It's Telegram and it's YouTube vloggers. That's the universe and conferences. That's the universe you have to play in.
0: Do you invest in any other cryptocurrencies and ICOs yourself?
1: Yes, Absolutely. Um, I, uh, I'm in on Proppy. Uh, I got it, which is um, basically real estate via the blockchain. Basically, you can do the full transaction and get the deed through a blockchain interface. There's one called Civic, which Vinny Lingam is behind, um, which is basically um, identity on the blockchain. I think I just got in on a thing called Clink, Q-L-U-I-N-K, which is a NEO-based token out of China. They're one of the very few ICOs I've seen that have working product they are mesh networking and it's basically coin powered mesh networking in China. They've actually got a working product up and running and, and you can download their apps and uh, it, lo- it looks pretty impressive. So I bought in on that one. So just a couple of examples.
0: Yeah, definitely. You, you mentioned uh, China a couple times actually. So how are global markets affecting crypto, especially, you know, the moves that China is making South Korea and others?
1: Well, the big whales in crypto, there's about 5,000 of them. And, uh, well, this was true as of November. It may have changed, <laughs> but this is this this absolutely was true in November. Uh, the biggest people investing in crypto five thousand people, uh, and they basically hail from China, South Korea, and Japan, and uh, now now and a little bit in Russia. And so you're you need to have your white papers translated to those languages, which which we have, so that you know they're easily accessible to those folks, and um, you know they they talk to each other and they have they have their own. Uh, bulletin boards and things they hang out on, you know, outreach to them is very important, and going there is very important. Besides your
0: own, what technologies or things that need to be built do you wish existed that don't exist today, but could with blockchain technology?
1: <laughs> I, you know, I think, uh, I mean, I think with the with the blockchain, well, the blockchain world needs a couple things. One, we need some sort of DNS system uh, so that we're not all using these goofy long addresses. Um, so that when if I want to send you any sort of token or coin. If I know your email address or your phone number, I should just be able to send it to you that way. And uh, it also, there also needs to be some sort of technology which lets me uh, reverse transactions or get my lost coins back or get my lost password back to a wallet that I can't find. Uh, EOS is actually making some strides on that. They just announced the latest version of their product uh, actually has that built into it. That's the first time I've heard anyone say that. That's very difficult to do uh, in a decentralized fashion. And lastly, we need decentralized exchanges so that, um, you know, if an exchange is shut down, uh, it it just there's no reason why they should be centralized. And we should have to sign up and, you know, move our coin into the exchange, do what what we want to do, move the coin out. You should just be able to do it from your wallet. Like your coins should never leave your wallet. So decentralized exchanges, I believe that there's several attempts going on right now. Somebody's got to crack that. I think once they do, then, you know, that that will be very, very helpful to to our little universe at large. So just making it more usable and more decentralized, more usable for normal people. It's still very difficult for normal people to use crypto. It's very uh, nerve wracking. You know, everyone sends 20 cents worth of Ethereum first just to make sure it gets there, that they didn't cut and paste the Ethereum address wrong. Like all that sort of goofy, it's almost like trying to use the web, but like imagine if we didn't have um, domains and we just all had to use IP addresses. <laughs> that's kind of what using crypto is like right now, and that needs to go away. needs something Needs something that makes it more digestible to normal people.
0: I think that's actually a really great analogy and why services like Coinbase are so popular because you can log in with a with an email and and a password. Um, and I know that, like, you know, for instance, during the holidays, you know, we had people giving uh, Ether as white, white Elephant gifts. And when people would, would get them, they're like, well, I, I don't know what to do with this. And there's, like, QR codes on it and long long wallet addresses and private keys and that sort of thing. I had no idea what they were doing. And th- the funny thing is, is that the Ether from White Elephant is still being mined because of all the traffic on, on the blockchain right now. <laughs> so, Jeez. um I, I do agree that it does need to be a lot more regular people friendly to to be able to become
1: mainstream. Yeah, I think uh Abra is actually doing a pretty good job of um of making it more usable. They have a new wallet uh that looks really really sweet. And it's not it's not everything that we're we're looking for, but it's probably the biggest leap forward I've seen in a long time.
0: Definitely. So for those listening who are interested in starting their own blockchain business or holding an ICO, what is the best piece of advice that you can offer them I I guess today?
1: Get some good advisors who have been through it before um, and, and don't assume that you know – don't assume just because you know the venture world that you know this world because you don't. And uh, go, to, go to a conference. I think that's probably the biggest, the biggest place you can start is go to like Coin Agenda or D10E or – I mean there's literally two or three crypto conferences every week. Um, so first of all, go there. Meet some people. Um, Second of all, get some advisors or some people who have actually been through the process before um, who can kind of point you away from the bombs and also plug you into what's happening now. Because as I said, this is the genesis planet. It changes every five minutes. And what was true two months ago is not true now. And new things are true that weren't true then. So being able to get on the wave and and be in the know on those things is extremely important. Yeah, that's, that's probably the biggest thing I can tell people.
0: Very cool. I think this is a great segue, actually, into our quickfire round, allowing our listeners to get to learn a little bit more about you personally. So I'd like to start off with asking, what is your favorite book? Oh, uh,
1: well, my favorite of all time is the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, the Unbeliever series that's been going on. There's about 10 books in the series. It's a fantasy series. And it's basically a, a guy from the real world who ends up being the Frodo in a, uh, uh, in a magical world, much like Lord of the Rings. Uh, but he's a reluctant hero, so sort of Holden Caulfield with a magic ring. Um, he's sort of an anti-hero for the first three books. Then he, then he kind of gets into gear for the remaining seven books. Love that series. What do you collect, if anything, and why? Oh, Um not really a collector, so I, I, um, hmm, I'm not really sure how to answer that. Books, I guess. I love books, so I, I have lots of books.
0: Very cool. Uh, so what gets you up in the morning and
1: what keeps you up at night? I well, I'm a very project-oriented person, uh, whether it be a company or a novel that I'm working on, um, and so usually that is the thing that gets me up in the morning. Uh, I really love coming up with ideas and executing them, and uh, that, that's kind of what I live for. That's that's what I've always you know been into even since I've been a kid. So, uh, and then what keeps me up at night. Well, um, when things go wrong with those projects, <laughs> <laughs> or I run into some roadblock I didn't see coming, or you know, I get stuffed at the hoop in some way I didn't anticipate.
0: What's one thing you spend
1: too much money on that you don't regret? <laughs> um, Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, I spent a lot of money early on on Bitcoin, and, and the whole time I'm like, oh God, I hope I'm not pissing this money just into a vacuum. And it uh, turned out that it was, it was quite the opposite. So, but I didn't really know that for a couple of years.
0: What band or artist would you travel 500 miles to see? Pink Floyd. Ooh, good answer. Yeah. Dream job as a kid?
1: Oh, uh, um, owning my own company. Literally, that was it. Like a tech company. Just because, because I used to read. You want to know why? I'll tell you. i you exactly why. Because I used to read the Tom Swift books, and, which you might be a little uh, young to know about. But basically, uh, it's about like you know a, a a young inventor and him and his dad like run the Swift Enterprises. It's pretty much like Stark Enterprises, and they got all kinds of cool stuff, and every every book is like some new invention uh, that they get into trouble with or that does something or they find something with. So um, you know, I wanted to be like Tom Swift. That's why.
0: You are literally living the dream. I love it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, what do we have to be optimistic about the future?
1: Uh, I, you know, I believe that the decentralization trend, mostly the monetary impact of it, makes me very hopeful because I believe that it will finally break kind of the unfair advantages that the banks have and put that power into the hands of regular people. And I honestly really do believe that. And so far that seems to be in fact the case. Um, So our, our our idealism weirdly seems to be being supported by reality. So I, I think that so long as that trend continues and we keep pushing that line forward, that is probably the biggest thing that can benefit all humanity. Um, and, I, and I mean this, you know, uh, in my heart of hearts. I think that that's really happening. And we're just in the beginning days of it. And uh, this will raise the standard of living in multiple dimensions for all humans on Earth. And we just all, all of us who are working on a little bit of it, just need to keep pushing those little bits forward. And uh, this will happen.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. Well, so we've arrived at the point of the show where I give the platform to you to plug anything that you like.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, the thing I'm plugging right now is Gar- the Guardian token and our, our token sale. You can learn more at tokensale.guardiancircle.com or as of this morning, we actually just got it up and running, guardium.co. So just enter that in. You'll see our site. Sign up for the emailing list and I hope you decide to participate in our token sale.
0: Mark, I'd like to thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Guardian and Guardian Circle are super exciting projects that could literally save lives, and which is always a worthy mission in my book. In fact, I'd frankly think it'd be really awesome if you could ship the product, uh, both of them really, as OEMs in all new devices. Like, How cool would that be? That I, would I, be so cool. <laughs> I think you're doing the Lord's work, and I really enjoyed sharing your story on the podcast today, and I'd just like to say mahalo. Huh,
1: thank you, sir. Thank you so much for having me.
0: enjoyed today's show please subscribe to the venture forth podcast on itunes google play music stitcher or soundcloud you can also follow at venture forth pod on twitter for our latest updates as always i'm your host joe mahabutivani and thank you for listening to the venture forth podcast